Many of you know what it is to grow up with a proud connection to your heritage. And by heritage, I mean that genealogy, that family tree, that lineage going back well into the past. In the revival recently of these genealogy sites, 23andMe and all these other things, people have been fascinated to dig back into their past. Who and where have I come from? And we are, we know that kind of powerful connection that can have. We see it even here in the United States, what's been called the great melting pot, where people have come from different cultures and retained something about that culture, and yet it seems in some ways to be mixed into some greater or unique American heritage. I certainly grew up with a uh, a very strong connection to heritage. We said prayers in Swedish before every meal. We ate lutefisk on Christmas Eve, though frankly any heritage that involves lutefisk I'm not sure is worth preserving. But that being said, we had it. Um, I don't know much, too much going in very ancient times about my Swedish heritage. I suspect my heritage back then was, uh, was robbing and marauding across northern Europe. I don't want to dig too far back. I may be owe reparations to half of England and France. I don't know. It could be. But nonetheless, I think all of us in our own ways are connected to our own heritage. And these people, thank you, Ben, of the first century that, that the author of Hebrews was writing to were proud of their own heritage. Jews, especially in this day, but even, of course, coming to this own day, have been proud of their heritage because there is something to be proud of. God said to Abraham, in your seed, through your descendants, I will bless the entire world. And through the Jewish people, God has channeled his blessings from the Old Testament all the way to us today who are connected to the faith of Abraham. And so we see throughout our New Testament the role that genealogies played, tying back the, the Jews of that day to the ancient people, to the people who had received the promises. And this is really, as we have been learning, what Hebrews 11 is really drawing from. Hebrews 11 in verse 1 starts, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Jews. And he's saying, your forefathers, your, your, um, the, the people in your heritage, how did they receive God's approval? By faith. And he's saying to them, therefore, you need to follow in that heritage. You need to follow in those footsteps. You need to live out your family lineage. Not even as much a physical heritage, though it was a physical heritage, but a spiritual heritage of faith. 
And again, as we've depicted, it's like this author of Hebrews is inviting all of us into a portrait gallery. And he's going around identifying all these great examples of faith. And for the Hebrews, it would have had this strong power, not just because of the spiritual lineage, but they're talking about their family line, about the Jewish people, about these people they had grown up learning about, identifying with, and waiting to see the promise of God revealed. And we get a sense of that as we close this chapter. If you look with me in verse number 39, the author of Hebrews says, and these all, looking across the entire portrait gallery that he had led them through, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. Now listen to this interesting verse. God having provided some better thing for us, some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, do you understand what he's saying there as you read that? Or are you a little bit confused? What does it mean when he says, these all, these ones in this portrait gallery, they didn't receive the promise? But God has given something better to you so that without you, they wouldn't be made perfect. Do we understand what he's saying by that? I'm going to title the message this morning, By Faith, the Heritage of the Saints. By Faith, the Heritage of the Saints. Of the saints. And by saints, I don't mean some who have been beatified like the Roman Catholic Church speaks of. There's no biblical basis for that. Who are the saints? All of us. All of us are saints. If you look in the New Testament over and over, we are referred to as saints. Not some special class of elevated people. Special Christians are the saints. No. All of us are the saints. And what I mean to to demonstrate to you today is that from Hebrews chapter 11, this heritage that these Hebrews were so proud of is not just their heritage, but it's yours. This heritage of what they experienced in their great triumphs and in their great tragedies and sufferings is your heritage And there's one great through line, one great connector from you to them. And it's faith. Faith that will be culminated in God's great and final act in his drama of redemption. So notice with me, first of all, what I'm going to call the contrast in this heritage of the saints that we're going to talk about this morning. And I want to back up from verse number 39 and look together back to verse number 32. Now, you remember last week we looked at verse number 32. We talked about these final pictures in this portrait gallery. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and then more broadly, the prophets. But I want us to look then at verse number 33. And again, we depicted last week as if the author of Hebrews is going across all these portraits and he doesn't have time. So he says, there's a room over there and there's another room over there and we can't get into all of them, but there are these pictures over there. And just look with me, will you? 
he says of these great heroes of faith that he doesn't have time to describe in verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. Now who do we think is in that portrait room? Who is in that gallery of those who subdued kingdoms? Would David be in there? Yes. Who else would? Would Joshua be in there? Would the judges that we saw, Gideon, Jephthah, would they be in there? Yes, they subdued kingdoms. So those are the ones in that portrait gallery over there. What about the next one? Who wrought righteousness or worked righteousness? Now, who would be in there? Well, do we have time to name them all? Who worked righteousness in our Old Testament? All these people we're looking at. Samuel being the great prophet, Noah being the great preacher of righteousness, Abraham being an example of righteousness and faith wherever we went. Again, we could go on and on. What about next? Those who obtain promises. Again, who would be in that portrait gallery? Well, just think of Sarah and Abraham receiving the promise of God that they'd have a baby when they were past bearing age. And when Sarah was 90 and Abraham was approaching 100, they had a baby together. Again, we could go on and on. Keep on going. Notice, notice the next. By faith, they stopped the mouths of lions. Who do you think was in that portrait gallery? Samson would be one. Daniel, maybe most famously, right? You see what he's doing here. He, he's just identifying the room, and he's letting us figure out who's in that room. But of course, we know. Look at verse 34. They quenched the violence of fire. Who would be in that portrait gallery? Who quenched the violence of fire? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them? They quenched the, mouths, the mouth of fire. Keep on going. Escape the edge of the sword. Who escaped the edge of the sword? Again, we could go on and on. David and all those who escaped the edge of the sword in their great triumphs. Notice the, there's a connection here. We keep on going. Out of weakness, we're made strong. They waxed valiant in fight. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens, the foreigners, the invaders. And we see this picture of great military conquests in the book of Joshua, in the book of Judges. In verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. Who would be in that portrait gallery? Do you remember Elijah uh, raising to life again the, the, uh, the, the widow of Zarephath. We read about that in 1 Kings 17. What else do we remember? What about Elisha raising that, the, the child of that, that great woman, the Shunammite, who had been taking care of him? He raised her son to life again. We read about that in 2 Kings 4. These portrait galleries are connected by one thing. Incredible triumph, incredible victory, incredible success. These are the heroes who prevailed, who won, who went up against great adversaries. And we say, oh, I'd like to be like them. I'd like to get strength out of weakness. I'd like to have victory in my life. I would like to prevail and succeed. I'd like to be like them. Well, look at what comes next. And others were tortured. You say, okay, well, I like that last part. But tortured? Do you know what this word means? The word literally means to beat 
on a drum. It's the word from which we get our word timpani. You know, timpani in the symphony, that the, the very tight drum, the skin that's stretched across and you pound on it. The picture of torturing here is that these people were beaten like a drum. And it may indeed refer to people being stretched, stretched on, a, on, on like a wheel so that they would stretched and beaten. You say, who's in this portrait gallery? Well, we don't read that expressly in Scripture. The author of Hebrews may be referring to something that the Maccabees experienced. The Maccabees were those who stood up for the worship of Jehovah between the Old Testament and New Testament period, between Malachi and Matthew. We don't read about them in Scripture, but history suggests that they may have gone through something like this, this kind of torturing for their faith. You say, whoa, We'll keep on going. And um, why were they tortured? They weren't accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Who was mocked? Who's in that portrait gallery? Remember Samson with his eyes put out, being mocked by the Philistines? We could go on. Who, who were imprisoned? Who received bonds and imprisonment? Do you remember Jeremiah the prophet being thrown in? to jail as a result of his faithful prophecy. They were stoned. Who were stoned? Who were actually killed by rocks, boulders being hurtled at them? We remember Zechariah. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, 2 Chronicles 24, shows that Jehoiada the priest who had raised Joash, the king of Judah, from a young boy, his son was ordered to be murdered by Joash, the one who showed no regard for the generosity of Jehoiada. Now what happened? What happened? They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. This is maybe the most gory. They were sawn in two. You say, who was sawn in half? We don't, again, see this in Scripture, but fairly strong tradition of the Jewish people says that Isaiah the prophet was actually literally sawn in two. He was sawn in two by order of Manasseh, that wicked king of Judah, and it is said that he was sawn in half. One of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. That was his end. He was sawn in two. Notice what happens. Not, not only that, they were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You say, who were these people? They were people of faith. You say, like those people that won, that Conquered, that prevailed, that received victory. Yeah, just like them. They were people of faith in, tra in triumph. And they were people of faith in tragedy. They were people of faith in great success. And they were people of faith in great suffering. And we could go on. Now, immediately, we need to understand not just this great contrast in, not, in, in, in this heritage that's being given in Hebrews 11, the contrast between great victory and great loss and great difficulty. But secondly, what I'm going to call the connector, the connector between these two groups of people. Notice, if you will, with me, in verse number 39, 
Here's the conclusion that is reached. And these all, he's talking about all of them now, having obtained a good report through faith. That word report, there's the idea of a testimony, a witness. Whose testimony? Whose witness? God's. God is testifying of all of these people. He's giving them a good testimony, a good report. All of them through faith. Now, it's easy to say here, well, I understand how the people who conquered, who prevailed, who had victory, I understand how they got God's approval because God gave them their approval. They won. But what about the people who got sawn in half? What about the people who were tortured? What about the people whose end was being destitute and afflicted and wandering about, rejected entirely by the world? Did they receive God's good testimony? They did. They received it through faith. By faith, they received God's approval. Now let's pause for just a moment because we need to identify a view today that is common across even our churches. You'll see it presented by preachers on television and on the radio. And they want you to believe this. God's approval looks like really good things happening to you. God's approval looks like getting money, looks like getting a good job, looks like having great family relationships, and looks like being accepted by those around you. And then it, even without necessarily saying it, they will say it in, in, in implied terms. They will say, if you are not receiving that, it's because you don't have enough what? Faith. You don't believe enough. That is a damnable lie. Because Hebrews 11 is identifying us to people who had greater and more unimaginable suffering than I trust any of us could fathom. And they all received God's approval through faith. In other words, when Isaiah was being sawn in half, God was testifying a good testimony to him. That means when all across, even today in our world, in China and in the Middle East and in other places, our brothers and sisters in the faith are being tortured and they are not accepting deliverance. They are not accepting deliverance. They are not denying the name of Christ. God is testifying to them good things. He is saying, I am pleased with that person. Why? By faith. Now, friend, what is the connector? What's the through line between those who are prevailing by faith, re receiving victory and, 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 and wonderful uh, times through faith and those who are utterly being tortured and abandoned by the world? What's the through line? It's faith. Now, notice here what we see this kind of faith is. Verse 35 says, these who were being tortured were not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Why was it faith that was motivating these people who were being to uh, tortured, who were suffering? Because they were looking to something beyond their suffering and saying, I want that. They were looking to something beyond the difficulty and saying, I want that over there. And if I have to go through suffering to get it, so be it. I want that resurrection more than this one, more than this life. And what connects them to the people who won great victories 
was that at the time of the victory, those people didn't know which way it was going to go either. I just want you to take the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar constructs this massive idol and says, everyone fall down and worship at that idol. Everyone bow down and you are, are going to do that on penalty of death. If you don't, you'll be killed. And of course, everyone bows down. They're wanting to preserve their life. And what do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? Uh-uh. We're not going to bow down. And they're arrested and they're hauled in front, of ne- in front of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. Now, at that point, when they're sitting there and they're seeing the burning, fiery furnace in front of them and feeling its heat, do they know which, what's going to happen? Do they know whether they're literally going to be burned alive or whether they're going to be delivered? No, they don't. But they don't care. That's the connector line. You say, how do we know that? Because listen to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Daniel 3 And verse 16, listen to this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, if you're going to throw us in the burning, fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, if not, If he doesn't deliver us, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We will not. They didn't know which way it was going to go. What did they know? They knew that there was something more important than living for this life. They knew there was something beyond this life connected to God and what he had promised for all of his faithful servants that was far more important than comfort in this life. And for some, God gave them deliverance. He said, in my purposes, you will be delivered. And for others, in their trial, God said, you will suffer. And each one of them says, Whether I triumph or whether I experience tragedy, whether I'm delivered or whether I'm defeated, I am living for something I cannot see. And isn't that what we've learned faith is? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. As we put that in verb form, it substantiates what we hope for in the future. It makes it real. It is the evidence of, it proves What we cannot see. What is faith? Faith is the reality of the soul. It is the reality of things we cannot see with these eyes. It is living for something that I cannot see now. And even that those around me do not see. And when it is confronted with what it can see, challenges, obstacles, suffering, tragedy, it says, I still am going to live for what I cannot see. Do you know how true that is for us in our spiritual lives? If you want to walk by faith, do you know what happens when you and I sin, when we give in to temptation? What's really happening is this. What's happening is that in that moment of time, your desire, your fleshly desire, your emotional desire, your mental desire, whatever it is, is more real to you than the promises of God are. It's more real to you. So you say, I want that. I'm choosing that. 
And when you experience victory in your Christian life, when you are obeying God and trusting in him, what is more real to you in that moment than your temptations, than your desires, than what is enticing you is the reality of God and his promise. And you say, nope, I'm going to say no to that. And I'm going to say yes to God. That's faith. That's walking by faith, walking in the reality of who God is and what he has promised you, even where you cannot see it. And the connecting line across those who suffered and those who who triumphed was this line of faith that caused them to look and say, I'm going with what I can't see. I remember this when I was 25 years old, when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And when I was diagnosed, my doctor told me, he said, they expect that it's cancer, that it is malignant. Now, I didn't know one way or the other. It turned out not to be. But I didn't know that for a period of days, for several days, until we did further testing. And I remember having to get comfortable at 25 years old that I might die very soon. This may be malignant. I may go. And, you know, I still remember to this day reaching that, that kind of equilibrium of just saying, either way, either way, I'm good. And I remember that next Monday, I learned about it on a Saturday, and that next Monday I had to go into my office where I had been working and tell the people there, sorry, I'm about to have major brain surgery, okay? And I remember I told people, I said, I have a brain tumor, and the look of shock on their face, and immediately they were just so worried, they were so concerned, and it was the craziest thing because I felt like I was comforting them, not the other way around. I was saying, no, I'm really okay. I promise, I'm okay. I'm good. And some of you who have gone through that same kind of experience or whatever it is, you know when you reach that peace of your soul that you say, God, whatever, I'm good. I'm good. Whatever it is. We sing about that. Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say. Why? The last verse of that hymn says it. And Lord, haste the day when my faith become sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. Why can we say it is well with my soul whether I'm struck down by this disease or whether I am delivered from it? Because we're living for something that we cannot see that will be brought about when Jesus returns and makes all things right. And thus we can say, it is well. It is well with my soul. The contrast, great suffering and great triumph, is connected by this line of faith that simply approaches whatever is in our path and says, your will be done. All I know is that I'm wanting to obtain a better resurrection than anything I can experience here in this life. And that leads us finally to what I'm going to call the completion of this heritage. The contrast, the connector, and finally, the completion. Will you look with me again at verse 39 here in Hebrews 11? And these all, all of these that we have seen across Hebrews 11, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise Do you understand what that means, what he's saying there? They received not the promise. 
No, because think with me for a minute. If we're thinking about the people who prevailed, we're thinking they did receive the promise. Did Abraham and Sarah receive their promise? One of them. But notice the word here. They did not receive the promise. The promise. Now, there are two ways to look at this. One way, and this would, I would say, is the majority view. This is what I came across most when I was studying for this message. The pro predominant view is that the promise that they missed out on, that they did not see in their Old Testament lens, was the Messiah. They didn't experience the coming of the Messiah. But we have experienced the coming of the Messiah. And notice verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us. They were under the old covenant. They did not receive the coming of the Messiah. We have received the coming of the Messiah. That is the better thing that we have received. And certainly there's truth in that. Certainly there was a promise of the Messiah coming throughout the Old Testament that they looked ahead to but never received. We have received the promise of the Messiah. We have and are experiencing those blessings under the new covenant that is better than anything they experienced in the Old Testament. Better than any of the blessings even they received back then. That is true. But I want to suggest I don't think that's what this passage is actually saying. I don't think that's the message that is being sent here. And to understand it, we need to think and understand what the promise is that verse 39 is talking to us of. What has come through all of Hebrews 11 about what these people were looking forward to? You saw it even among those that were being tortured. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain what? A better resurrection. A better resurrection. Why does he say that? Go back then to Hebrews chapter 11. Go back a little bit in this. In verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What was he looking for? Something he would find on this earth? No. Something he'd find in another one. Notice verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now look at down to verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly country. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. What were they looking forward to? The Messiah, yes. But even more directly to what the Messiah would bring. The culmination of God's redemptive purposes a new heaven and a new earth that righteousness would dwell in, when God himself would be among his people, when they would experience the righteousness of God 
eternally in communion with their creator. And I believe that is what is being referred to here when Hebrews 11 speaks of the promise, not just the Messiah, but the enduring kingship of the Messiah, the reign of the Messiah eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. And I believe that's to be, that's, that is true if you just look back at Hebrews chapter 10, will you? Look back at Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in verse 36. In verse 35, excuse me, for context, he says, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive what? The promise. Same word. The promise. Now, is he presenting this in Hebrews chapter 10? Is he saying the promise that you have received or that you haven't received it yet? You haven't. He said, you, after you've done the will of God, then you receive the promise. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Notice verse 15. And for this cause, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called, that's us, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Have you received your eternal inheritance yet, friend? No. Have you received the promise of it? Yes. Have you received the first fruits of it? Have you received the down payment of it? Yes. That's the Holy Spirit that you have received. Are you, do you have a redeemed body yet? Do you, are you living in a new heaven and a new earth? Are you in perfect, complete communion with God through Jesus Christ in a glorified state? No, you are not. You, in other words, are like them. This is why I don't believe that the author of Hebrews is saying they had a promise, they didn't receive it, and you have. This is the better thing. No, through what Hebrews, he's saying they didn't receive a promise and you haven't received it yet either. It's in the future for you too. An eternal inheritance. You need to persevere by faith for you to receive that promise too. Now notice again what he says then in Hebrews 11. They did not receive the promise. They didn't receive what God had in the future for them. Why? God having provided some better thing for us. He said, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Again, the better thing is not simply what we have received in Christ, though that is a better thing. What I think he's saying here is he's comparing it to if they had received the promise back then. Do you know there was nothing that would have stopped God from bringing the consummation of all things or bringing Jesus Christ as the Messiah in the days of Isaiah? In the days of Jeremiah? There was nothing that would have stopped God from doing that in any way. What is the better thing? The better thing is that we get to be part of it. The better thing is that God looked ahead past their time and said, I'm going to bring the Gentiles in to this story. 
I'm going to bless all the people of the earth through this story. I am going to bring in my people for redemption from the four corners of the earth and they will be blessed with the elders who obtained my approval by faith. The promise is something all of us are looking forward to, the ultimate promise. None of us have obtained it yet, but we, friends, are all together there is this connecting line of faith that went from the very beginning of God's story and is continuing through to the very end of God's story through us. We are part of this heritage of the saints. And the better thing that God has invited us into is to share in that heritage with a promise of an eternal inheritance in a new heaven and a new earth. Now what does that do for us? When we see, notice verse 40, that they without us should not be made perfect. Do you understand what he's saying now by that phrase? He's saying for them to get their final inheritance, what needs to happen? God's plan of redemption needs to be completed with us. In other words, let's think for a moment. What is Isaiah experiencing right now? What is Abraham experiencing? What is Noah experiencing right now? Are they experiencing everything that God has promised for them? No, they don't have a new body yet. They're not living in a new heaven and a new earth. They don't have it yet. What are they? We know they're at rest. We know they are in the presence of Jesus because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's where they are right now. But what is going to need to happen for them to be perfect, to be completed in the promise that God made? You and I need to come in. In other words, no one gets the promise until everyone does. Because one day Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout. There's going to be the sound of the trumpet. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. They are going to receive their redeemed bodies. And then we are going to be transformed in a moment. Those which are alive and we are going to meet Jesus with in the air. And then we are forever going to be with the Lord. And when everyone comes in, then in that great heritage, all those of faith are going to be completed, will be perfected eternally with us. We are all part of the family of faith across all time. How encouraging do you think this would have been to the Hebrews of the first century? They were suffering. They were being persecuted. They were being abandoned by their family and friends. They were being cast out of their community. And they were starting to say, is this really worth it? And the author of Hebrews is saying to them, you need to realize that those heroes of faith that you looked to back then, you're in the same heritage. They are waiting on you. 
They are waiting on us. They are waiting until God's entire plan of redemption is done, until the last portrait has gone up in that empty wing of that portrait gallery down the hall, until the last sinner has, been, has come in by the blood of Jesus Christ, and God's entire plan of redemption is accomplished, and Jesus returns, and then, and then, and only then, will all the family of faith across all generations be brought to completion, to perfection. Those Hebrews would have said, I can continue on. I can continue on in the family of faith. I can continue pursuing this better resurrection that has been planned for me, just like my heritage did thousands of years before. And what about you, friend? Some of you are going through hard times. You've experienced suffering. You've experienced tragedy. You are in sorrow right now. You are mourning. But remember, whether you're succeeding or whether you're suffering, whether you're experiencing triumph or whether you are experiencing tragedy, the connector line across all of God's family, across the saints of all time, is faith. Faith that doesn't look to the obstacles in front of my path or the difficulties I'm experiencing now, but that looks beyond it to the reality of what God has promised in a better resurrection, in a life eternal, in a glorified state with him. And it clings to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith to run whatever race has been set before us. Five years ago this fall, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series, baseball's World Series, for the first time in 108 years. 108 years. They were the mockery of Major League Baseball until they finally prevailed. And as they approached the series-clinching win, all these folks who in Chicago and around the country had cheered so painstakingly for the Cubs, so enduringly, so long-sufferingly for the Cubs, kind of like you Vikings fans, kind of like you Vikings fans, they began thinking about their heritage, the parents and grandparents who had cheered for the Cubs before them. And I read the sweetest story. This man who is now approaching older age in his life His father had died in 1980, 36 years before. And all the way back then, before his father died, they had always said, when the Cubs win the World Series, we're going to listen to it together on the radio. And this man was in North Carolina, and when the Cubs uh, came to the clinching game of the World Series, he drove all the way from North Carolina to Indiana to listen to the game at his dad's graveside. We saw other stories of people, the Cubs winning and and children bringing memorabilia and bringing it to the gravesite and putting it down for this heritage of folks who had come before and and if the Vikings ever win. I'm sorry, we're we're talking hypotheticals, I know. You're going to see something similar. But friends, that's a child's game. That's a child's game. How much more? is our heritage 
dealing with the greatest realities, the greatest joys, the greatest promise of eternal life ahead of us, how much more should that connect us to God's plan of redemption? How much more should that connect us to the faith that grounds us now? How much more should that motivate us to live lives of faith and courage and endurance until our time is won, until our race is complete, and until we join that heritage of the faithful who are waiting for the ultimate perfection of what God has promised us. Are you a part of the heritage of the saints? If not, I pray that you wouldn't leave here without joining them today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for what is ours in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the heritage that we get to come into, the heritage of these great, great saints, those who experienced great triumph and great tragedy, but those who lived and walked by faith. Father, you have called some of us today. You have called all of us to walk by faith. Some of us are facing obstacles today that seem very dramatic, facing suffering that seems very overpowering, facing risks, facing challenges. And yet above it all, Father, there's a promise that none of us have experienced yet, a promise of a better resurrection, a promise of an eternal life with you, and you are calling us to hold the faith to live by faith, to walk by faith, to allow faith to change the way we live, the way we take on challenge, the way we endure suffering. So, Father, may it change us today, we pray. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Friend, are you living by faith? Are you keeping your eye on a better resurrection, on an eternal life in front of you? Or are you living with your eyes on today, on the challenges, the opportunities? May we see our heritage of faith and be strengthened in it. God having provided some better thing for us. Father, thank you that you have invited us into the plan of redemption, that we were known and loved before the foundation of the world, that you have brought us to be part of the heritage of the saints. Father, may we live as people of faith and walk as people of faith even this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Kevin to come up and uh, let us know what we're going to be doing for our corn roast. Corn roast. Let me also encourage you, uh, if you are looking to be baptized or at least interested in it, please meet me in my office right after we're done praying here. 
And Kevin, why don't you um, let us know what's going on and pray and thank God for the food and then dismiss.